Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. Uh, I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests. Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. I am your host, Aaron Broverman, and today we are recording a special episode Live and on location at 102.1 The Edge. That's right. With Mr. Fred Kennedy. Yes. Fearless Fred. Yeah, well, when I'm writing comics, it's just Fred Kennedy, so you can just call me Fred Kennedy. In Toronto, he hosts Fred and Mel with Rick in the morning, and uh, he writes a comic for Chapter House Comics called The Fourth Planet. Yeah. Welcome, Fred, how are you? I'm marvelous today, man. I'm good. It feels like we're finally getting winter. I know, I know. It's it's pretty cold out here, but it's warm in here, so I'm so I'm comfortable. Are you comfortable? <laughs> yeah. Awesome, awesome. So one thing that I read, and I, I just kinda wanna get right into it, is that uh the Infinity Gauntlet by Jim Starlin changed your life. How oh. did that comic changed your life because it came out of the perfect time um you start reading comics when you're younger and then as you get older your tastes in comics will change and the way you look at them changes and i always read archie comics and katie keen for anybody who knows that is because my sister would get them uh and the double laugh digests and then this is when we lived in belgium and then we moved to canada and we were in edmonton and i didn't have any friends so i used to go to the 7-eleven and I would buy like a Super Slurpee for 99 cents. And then I would put a quarter on the Super Street Fighter 2 machine and I would wait by and there was spinner racks by the by the machine. And that was the summer that Infinity Gauntlet was coming out. And I remember reading it and just like every superhero was in it. And I was pumped because I didn't know anything about the characters that were in it. I didn't know who Thanos, Thanos was. I didn't know who Mephisto was or uh, all the, like, Cloak. I remember Cloak was in it from Cloak and Dagger. I had no idea who that was. But they were all there. And I knew enough superheroes, like the Hulk, Wolverine, Spider-Man, all that. I knew who they were. And so when I was reading it, I was like, I could follow what was going on. And it was, I'd never read anything like that before. And I was I talked to Jeff Lemire about my love of the Infinity Gauntlet once and he kind of like he didn't roll his eyes but he was kind of half rolling his eyes 
it's not the best comic, but it is for me the comic that changed everything. It's like I've got bands that I love now, but the band that made me love most of the bands that I love is Rage Against the Machine, you know? So now that they're kind of adapting it into Infinity War, are you excited? Are you skeptical? Oh, I'm. you know, it's weird. With Star Wars, I'm hypercritical about everything. I actually just watched The Force Awakens yesterday with my father-in-law because he'd never seen it. I loved parts of it, and I hate parts of it, and there's parts of it that I can't get over, and I get really frustrated, like when the Millennium Falcon comes through the Force shield, and then Captain Phasma's like, okay, I'll shut everything down just because. You know, that part drives me crazy. But with the Marvel stuff, first, maybe it's just because they're so much better made, but I'm so forgiving about all of it because I've loved it since I was like 12. So I think I'm just really excited to see. And I remember getting such a charge out of the first Thor movie when you see Hawkeye. I was like, oh my God, Clint Barton's in it? That's amazing. So yeah, I'm very forgiving. And the things that they're changing, they're changing for good reason because there's just no way that any of that stuff would work. So I'm fine with it. Yeah, that's awesome. Hold on and a second. The way that like the stones are coming together, the infinity gems. Are you are you liking that? How they're sort of tying it together with all the different movies and that sort of thing. I think it's a cool idea. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. think you know, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't work in a movie type setting. I'll go back to the the Fantastic Four example, and don't get me wrong, I don't like the Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer at all. But I do kind of agree that Galactus wouldn't work in that movie. Like, he could work, but it would take a lot of massaging to make it work. Do you know what I mean? That's something a little bit better than, like, a cloud. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm just saying, like, that you're watching this movie that's attempting in some way, shape, or form to (laughs) give itself a semblance of of reason. Uh, And then this giant man is in the sky. That would make absolutely no sense. Right, right, totally. So what gave you your first contact with comics initially? Like what Um, got you into comics off the bat? You know, it was like uh, like reading the Archies and all that stuff, and then the Infinity Gauntlet, but I'd never bought a comic, really. Like, I just read them on the spinner rack. I didn't really buy them. It was actually, I got into them uh, through my friend's older brother. I had a friend named Chris, and he had an older brother named Ryan, and Ryan had a job, so Ryan bought stuff because he had money, and he bought all of the Marvel trading cards, like Series 1, 2, and 3, and he had Series 1, 2, 3, and 4, actually, and he would, let, like, just give me his doubles, and so it was actually those Marvel cards that had, like, the little bio on the back and the power ratings. And they and the, had really good art, too. They did, yeah, yeah, and yeah. the funny thing is, is, if you go back and look at the Series 4 cards, Jim Lee is drawing the cards, yeah. and you're, Jim Lee is Jim Lee now, exactly. but, it, like, the, the art that was on those cards is just top shelf. I think the it was the Series 4 cards that where all nine cards would make a singular image. So was this like the late 80s, early 90s? Early 90s. So this is when like Jim Lee is selling millions of X-Men comics. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, the X-Men number one came out with the wraparound cover and the Magneto and stuff. Oh, dude, and the, X- it was the, and the X-Men uh, arcade game with the double screen was also a big thing for me. Like, and you walk into the arcade, X-Men, and then it was like, all the guys. Always use Nightcrawler, by the way, in case you're curious. That's awesome. So did you start like seriously collecting, like bagging and boarding? I never like, I never, you know what? I still don't beg and board. I buy trades. I know I'm that awful guy who buys trades. And the reason I buy trades is because I don't have a lot of time. 
But when I do have time, I want to read as much as I can. And there's so many great comics out there that it's easy for me to wait a few months to get the next trade. Um, so what I do is I'm, I'm very, I treat it like, uh, like a video game like Skyrim. I'm a completionist. I got to do everything. So my problem, and I don't think it's a problem, I think it's awesome, is that I'll read a comic and then I'll like, I'll really like the artist or I'll really like the writer and then I'll go back and I'll find more things that they've done or I really like the character and I'll go back and I'll find more stories with that person. Like when I, whenever, when the Deadpool craze got super huge, I'd never really read Deadpool when he was like first, had first come out. So I went back and I started reading all the Deadpool classics all the way through so that I could catch up so that I would know it all. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Like that, that, that's the way I go. And I think that's why for a guy like me, trades work better. And I also really like from a creator standpoint of seeing how you build an episodic storyline. That's a big deal. Right. Cool. So how does such a big comic fan end up in radio? Like, what did you want to do with your uh, life after yeah. high school? Did you want to do this or did you want to write comics? Well, I want the thing was, is that it was never a I never thought of it as a realistic possibility. Okay. I never did. It was never something that I thought I could do. I, I toyed around. Radio is my third choice. I wanted to be a paleocultural anthropologist. And that is I wanted to study the origins of the idea of culture. Like, if you look at evolution, there's this 10,000-year window where this amazing thing happens. At one point, at the beginning of this window, we're just animals. We leave our dead where they die. We, we don't even do anything with them. Then all of a sudden, in this 10,000-year window, and this is globally, all of a sudden we start burying our dead. And not just burying our dead, but burying them with things. So there's this point in your brain where you start thinking that, they must be thinking there's something more than death. Right, that's the development of, like, God and yeah, faith. Yeah, exactly. Right. Not even a God and faith, but just a development of something, some sort of culture, some sort of desire to make your mark longer than what you're here for. Tool wrote a great song about 46 and 2 about the development of consciousness and stuff. But I wanted to do that. And then my dad gave me this big talk about, like, what are you going to do? You get a doctorate in this. What are you going to do? You're going to go live in the old Davi Gorge in Kenya for your whole life and, and study, like, really primitive primates? Is that what you want to do for your I know that you think it's interesting, but do you want to do it for a career? And so then I, I kind of was like, oh, forlorn and all this stuff. And then I thought about going to film school. But then all the people that took film in my high school, like we had a film class, they were all assholes. I didn't want anything to do with any of them. They were all these pretentious art assholes, and I hated them. So then I was like, I don't want to do that. But that's very similar to comics as well, in the sense that it's all storytelling, visualized storytelling. So I guess I thought about it. I went into radio because of a financial decision. It was two years of community college versus four years of school. You know what I mean? Okay, so you could, like, get out and work right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the weird thing is I ended up dropping out after four months of broadcasting school anyway. So I went, I, I used my radio demo and I faked it to get a job. Right. And, then, and then I just left school. Was getting a job hard? No, because I'm really good. No, it's <laughs> it's not that it's... The thing with radio is you've got to be brash in the sense that you've got to make sure you stand out above everybody else. So while everybody I knew was just mailing CDs, because this was the late 90s where you actually mailed a hard copy of your demo, I went in and dropped it off and went to talk to the program director when I dropped it off. And I met a guy named Darren Harvey, who was my first boss, the first guy to give me a shot, and... Meeting him uh, is what really just changed everything for me from a radio perspective because he gave me a shot. We really we really hit each other off like we both talked about. We actually ended up talking about how we loved Mozart. 
weirdly enough. <laughs> and and a radio voice is obviously a thing. Did you think you had a no, radio voice? No, I still don't think I have a radio voice. My buddy Kwame that was just in the studio before us, he's got a great voice. The president of Chorus Radio is this guy named Troy, and that guy's like, his vocal cords are made of silk. Like, oh, <laughs> the way he talks. Hi, Fred, how are you? And it's like, he's not even putting it on. That's just the way he sounds. I don't have that at all. Uh, Ever. I never did. I always wanted that voice. Did you get him to record your answering machine? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I wish I did. I, I I don't even have an answering machine because I never check my messages. It's always just, oh, you called. I'll text you. Text me. Text me. I'll call you back. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. So so that, so now you're here. Yeah. Do you feel like, I mean, they're always saying like, you know, especially like morning radio, it's sort of like the last of the die of a dying breed. Like there's not going to be a lot of radio. Yeah. Oh, dude, I am. Do you feel like you're in a very unique but precarious position? That's a great way of putting it a unique but precarious position it is because it's frustrating for me in the sense that i kind of i got into radio on the tail end and when i got in it was still booming like in the late 90s radio was still big and it is still big it's just not as big as it was like newspapers tv and radio are the are the old media newspapers and tv are in rough spot are in a rough spot radio is still doing very well it's got like a really significant profit margin i'm talking like business stuff this is ridiculous but it, it's doing well because it survives on passive tuning uh and it, it it's more i have always felt that radio is more authentic uh, because it's less structured and there's less cooks in the kitchen. In the studio, there's one guy. Or in my case, there's three of us. And so when the three of us talk, if we don't feel it, we don't do it. That's how it works. So we're very lucky in that regard. And I'm also very lucky in that I've found a niche for myself where I can turn on the microphone and I can give an in-depth critique of the teaser trailer the teaser for the new trailer for spider-man and make references about like the little innuendos that are in there and it'll sound fine because i've created a brand for myself where i'm not just a guy talking about comics i'm in the comic community you know what i mean so i'm lucky in that regard in that way like do you have to like walk a line you do in terms of how here's the way it is or raunchy you can be geeky and raunchy it's all about inclusion and this is the thing that I like, I try and incorporate in every aspect of my life. It was a hard lesson to learn. I used to be the guy that liked to laud what I knew over other people. Comic book store guy on The Simpsons is a sad reality. Because there's so many guys like that, and you know them, that they don't want to hear you talk about something. They want to hear you say something wrong so they can correct you. And it's amazing how many women don't go into comic shops because of Because of like that. that. It's like, a, it's, it's like a, this elitist idea, and the idea is to be as open as possible. Like, when I'm going on the air to talk about, be it uh, a comic book that I really love, or like when I talk about The Walking Dead, I can talk about the comics as well, uh, or whether I talk about Game of Thrones. I want to talk about Game of Thrones in a way so that when I'm talking about it, even if you've never seen an episode, you won't feel lost. Because when people feel lost, they tune out. And and that's a real issue with comic book creators as well, is that sometimes they they don't, you don't want to pander. But you don't want to be exclusive. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. So when I'm talking about like comics and stuff, I want to make sure that I'm creating fans of comics rather than creating people that are annoyed by how smart comic creators think they are. And that's probably because more people than just you are turning to graphic novels. Yeah, well... They they don't feel like they're in the middle of something that they're not allowed to be in. They can start at the beginning of the story. Yeah, totally. And, And that, honestly, like... 
I didn't read a lot of DC because of that. Even when you're starting a new line, like when they did uh, Green Lantern Rebirth in like 2004, I think it started. Like when they did that, which by the way, I, I love Green Lantern. Um, even then, uh, there were, if you didn't, and so I was trying to get, the reason this is specific is because I was trying to get friends into the Green Lantern. And I remember I gave it to one of my buddies and, and he was a comic book guy. Like we always read like Marvel stuff together. And it's just because of the demographic I am that Marvel was dominant when I was younger, but I tried to get him into Green Lantern and he read like, I think about half of that trade, the rebirth trade, and then didn't want to read anymore. And I'm like, why? He goes, because this is the first issue but they're talking about things that I don't know about and I feel like I'm being left out. And it's almost like it's like the the classic just one punchline that you always see in DC. When you make a big deal about something that other people don't know about and you're not making an effort to bring them in, they're, they're not going to want to stick around. It's like when you're having a conversation with a circle of friends and everyone starts telling inside jokes and there's the person that doesn't get it. You think they're going to want to get involved in that conversation? No. Marvel's mentality has always been you're new. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. When we start something on issue zero, everybody is going to be able to pick that up and it doesn't matter what else you've read. And that's, I think, why Marvel is still dominating is because that's their philosophy. And a lot of the DC guys, I've noticed, they like it that way. Uh, they like it that way because it makes them feel like they're exclusive. They're in something. They're in something. But it's bad for the industry because right. it needs to grow, right. you know? Exactly. You want new readers. You want new people picking up books all the time. So what do you think of all these new number ones and these events and these constant relaunches? No, that sort of that's stuff? different. I feel like I'm being contradictory when I say that. It's like, don't rebuild the house if you're not going to build the house, you know? It felt like with New 52, there were some strong points. There were some weak points. Just keep going. Don't restart again. And then that that is frustrating. That that kind of drove me a little bit crazy because it, it felt like they finally got that idea of like, okay, we'll have a story arc. We'll start. We'll reset the stage. Story arc. We'll stop. We'll reset the stage. We do that in radio all the time. You got to remember on radio, somebody could be tuning in uh, halfway through. You're doing a break. So it's important while you're on air. If I, I like to do two or three minute long breaks. I'll reset the stage every minute so that if you coming in, the most you're going to have to wait is 30 seconds until I tell you what we're doing. Okay. Like, we're doing a break today. Would you rather? And the would you rather question is, would you rather walk in on your mom and dad uh, role playing as Mr. and Mrs. Claus or walk in on your mom and dad in bed with a reindeer? So... I play a call, and when I come back off the end, I reset it. I don't just go from one call to another. I reset it so that if you've just tuned in, you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about. And you know what this is like when you're watching a TV show, and you're like, what is going on? And then all of a sudden, they're like, blah, 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 info dump. And you're like, finally, now I know. It feels good to know what's happening. Right, right. You know? Exactly. I'm getting all fired up over here, man. Exactly, exactly. So as a creator, and like now you're sort of... You're sort of part of that. Like, you're yeah. inside. Like, Toronto has one of the greatest comic book communities. Absolutely. Anywhere. Totally. We have, like, professionals working here. We've had people like Francis Manipal who got to basically reset the Flash. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of thing. So and that, I wasn't even a big Flash fan until his run. Like, that scene that he does with the airplane where he vibrates the plane. Like, the things that he did with the Flash I really loved. And the idea of, like, your past mistakes catching up with you. Little things that turn... Yeah, anyways, I'm ranting. So now that you're part of that, yeah. like, how do you feel? Do you feel like... 
radio got you there just because of your no, name? Or um, what do you think? I would feel that way if after like a year of doing it, like I knocked on the door and Image gave me a book. But I've paid my dues in the sense that I self-published for five years. Right. Big Sexy Comics. Yeah, Big Sexy right? Comics was. And that started as the nickname for the artist of the first book I ever did. My buddy, Tony Sklepek, who was like, he's six foot five and he was like close to 300 pounds. He was a big dude. And I always used to call him Big Sexy. And he did the first comic I ever did, which was called Mike Gorbsmith, the only good looking Russian ever. And it was about Mikhail Gorbachev. And at Chernobyl, he got superpowers and became really good looking. And because he had superpowers and was really good looking, the Russians and communists hate anything not average. So he was exiled. And that was it's I still think it's a very ridiculous and funny concept. I did that. And then I did a book called Helos with my friend uh, Andre Fernandez. Um, another local guy. Um, and then I did Teuton with Adam Gorham. And it was when I started doing Teuton that I was like, I told him from the beginning, I'm like, we're going to do a legitimate book. It's going to be like 12 issues long. It's going to have a sweeping story. It's going to be a big like sword and sorcery historical epic story. It's going to be awesome. And this is before Adam Gorham was on the violent or doing anything. Yeah. Image. Oh, like, I got him good, buddy. Name, right? I got a sweet page right out of that guy. <laughs> so, yeah, like that's a, and the thing was, is I think that I met Adam at the right time. And Adam has often said to me, he is frustrated because he goes, I feel like your story level is where it needs to be. Your writing is where it needs to be to get to that next point. My problem is that I'm tied down with my day job, with my wife and kids. I can't hit all the shows to meet all the editors. So it's I'm knocking on a lot of doors and I'm not getting anybody from like Marvel or DC or Vertigo or any of these things like Jamie Rich isn't going to like, oh, Fred, absolutely. We'll green light that idea. That's not going to happen to me. So I'm doing the same thing as everybody else. Sending pitches blindly to every single creator I can find, you know, like every imprint. I've pitched it to everybody. I've sent out at this point at least 10 pitches out at this point. One of them got picked up and then issues happened which I can't really get into uh legally. But issues happened that prevented me from able to have that book released and that was like that happened last year and it was like heartbreaking because I was so close and I, it was such a good story and I still believe in it and it was just a legal issue and yeah. So were comics the real dream? What took Oh you yeah, you know the thing a was fan to being wanting to do this. The dream was to tell stories. Okay. The dream was just to tell stories and Telling stories about what happened to me at the grocery store on the weekend to me is the same as telling stories about what's happening on a faraway planet. Like I put them in the exact same category in my brain. I always had the dream of telling stories. And when I started writing comics, I started my first comic that I actually wrote was like a like a 12 hour comic challenge where you just do like an ash oh, can. Yeah, I've done a couple and then I did uh, I did two 24 hour comic book challenges and after I had done that, uh, that's when I was like, I should really write, like, try, you know, just try and do a good comic. And that's when I started doing it. Awesome. But I would love to, like you, you pointed it out, like, it feels like a precarious position. I would love to one day work in a small town radio station and write comics on the side and have that supplement my income. Like right now, like 
it's kind of like when you're a band, you pay to play. Like you pay, and then what money you, the bar makes after they profit from you being on there, you get to keep. That's where I'm at with Chapter House right now. Right, and it's a quarterly book. Yeah, it's right? a quarterly book. It's quarterly because I just can't afford to do it more than quarterly. And I also like know that Miko, he loves doing the story, but he loves doing other freelance stuff. He is an artist's artist. How do you pronounce his last name? Miko Machesik. Okay. <laughs> Don't cool. worry, I butchered it so many times. <laughs> okay. I called him Machiazic, Machesic. And then when I, the thing was, is I would say that and you'd be like, that's good. It's close. It's <laughs> always so nice about it. It's Mashejek is what it is. So how did Fourth Planet come to you? How did that start? How did you guys get together on that book? Well, Adam and I had finished doing Teuton and we had done, we did a pitch and we both realized now, like we both say, like, it's not that the story was bad, it's that our pitch was bad. We did a terrible job of selling the story. But these are just things that you learn, you know? Uh, we actually, it was Dave Marshall at Dark Horse who really broke down. He's like, I see what you're going for with this story. Uh, but the problem is that if you can't sell me on the story, you're not going to sell a reader on the story. Uh, so it, it didn't work out. And after that was done, he started, I think he did... What was that book Alish Cott was doing with the spy book? And every book issue had a new artist. He did an issue. Adam did an issue of that with Alish Cott. And then he went on to start doing stuff with Valiant, like doing covers. And so he was over the six month period between we had finished doing Teuton Volume 3 and doing this pitch. He started really getting a lot more professional work. And I became very distraught in the sense that I was like, I just fuck it. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then he said, that it was, um, he said, he goes, as your friend, I, you're wasting talent if you just stop. You just thought it was too frustrating? like Yeah, absolutely. I, I got frustrated because no one likes rejection. And I did kind of get like a little bit haughty with, uh, I'm a successful broadcaster. These people should want my book. Why are they not wanting my my book? And then you realize it's like me saying that is like some kid coming out of broadcasting school and coming up to me going like, I was the best in my college class. Why aren't you giving me a job? It's like, that's apples and oranges, man. You can be the greatest carpenter in the world. It doesn't mean you're going to be a great baseball player. And depending on perception, particularly in broadcast, like Toronto is a large market in a small pond of Canada. Yeah. Right? Like it, for a lot of people still, it doesn't matter if you make it. Totally. Uh. Totally. It doesn't. And it's, that's what's fr- And You know what? You should talk to some comedians about that. Like they, they will just straight up say like, you can be the biggest touring comedian in Canada. That doesn't mean anything when you go to LA. And so, I was getting frustrated, sending out pitches, and then I had this story, and and I'd always told Adam about it. I I was like, I want to do a webcomic. I'll put out a page every week, but I want it to look unique and good. I want it to have a style. And so I posted, I just posted a tweet saying, listen, I'm looking for an artist. It's a sci-fi story. I'm going to supply you with a one page of notes of an overview of the story and then one page script. That's it. If you ask any questions, I'm not doing it with you. You're already out because I didn't want to have to handhold and re-explain everything. And first of all, artists hate getting notes. Secondly, I didn't want to have to be overly concerned about who I was working with. And so I put it out and I got a few really good, like a few really good applications, applications, like it's some job. There was a guy, Eric Irwin, who's a creator here in Toronto Eric Irwin, like, was his. 
I've the only person I really felt bad about rejecting was Eric Irwin. He was the only guy I felt bad about rejecting because he followed the notes to the T, to the letter. Everything that I had said was in there. Whereas Miko, it's like he didn't even read the notes. He just read the script and did his own thing with it. And he, he, he captured the essence of what I wanted. The feeling was there. And to me, it was the feeling that was more important than anything else. Isn't it interesting how... Like, it's sort of, you think you want exactly what you wrote on the page. Yeah. What you really want is somebody to interpret what you... Totally. In their own way. It felt like I was reading something different, and it made me, like... Miko's art speaks for itself. Exactly. It's beautiful. It had everything I wanted, and I had met Miko. We tabled next to Miko at Fan Expo. I think it was, like, 2011? Yeah, I think it was 2011. His art was just so he actually said, I was like, oh, Fred, because he did a pinup for us in uh, he did one of the pinups in the Teuton. I think it was the second trade. He did a pinup for us. But he's like, he was, can I get in on this? I'm like, Miko, you're like an artist artist. You don't need to do this. He's like, I really want to. I really like it. I want to do it. I'm like, "Okay, okay." So then when his his came in, I was like that. You are the one. There's like a great scene in Last of the Mohicans where one of the characters like show me who will meet a woman and she will look at him and say, you are the one and bear him many children. And that's Miko. He looked at me and said, you are the one. And he's born me many children, like all kinds of pages. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. You're listening to Speech Bubble. More after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. I have to sort of get back to what we were talking about before. I'm terrible of, guest, I'm in sorry. Terms, in terms of getting people back into what we're talking about, can you summarize for people who've never read the story, like what Fourth Planet is about? You know, it's like uh, humanity is a slave race. They've been totally conquered, massacred, butchered, and like bred for the purposes of war by this alien race called the Tithic Empire, who you never actually see. When I, and I love that the best because you never actually see them. They're just talked about in fear a lot. Uh, and these humans escape on this ship. They end up crashing on this planet in their massive warship. Um, and there's about like 6,000 humans. And all they want to do is survive. But this planet is inhabited by three warring alien races. They're relatively primitive. The most advanced of them has just started using gunpowder. And so these humans arrive and they're drastically outnumbered, but they're so far ahead technologically. And it's this is classic human nature. No matter how much they try and avoid it, confrontation keeps being brought to them. It's being brought to them over and over and over and over again. And so they're put in a position where just to survive, they're almost forced to become what they want to escape. You know what I mean? Right. right. And some of the humans are like, no, we don't need to do this. And some of them are like, what are we going to do? Just keep letting them attack us. We need to stand up for ourselves. It's an interesting dynamic because they're 
they start out as the slaves. Yeah. They're the persecuted, but then they become the slave master. Or do right. they? You've got to watch it. You've got to read it. Right, oh, right. who knows? Right. And, and <laughs> you were saying earlier how you had this degree in like social uh, and anthropology. I wanted to get a degree. I just was an avid reader about it. Like David Morris is the human animal. I read it constantly. Right. And it seems like, you know, with, with your ideas about how like most of the technology, except for what the humans have, is primitive. Yeah. That's really informed by, you know, that your interest in that. Yeah. Yeah, to, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm really also interested in the span, the the conquest of the new world, like in particular with the fall of the Aztec Empire, and we have this idea that we're taught about the Aztec Empire is like these these 200 Spaniards land and then they just massacre everybody, but the, that's not really what happened. When they landed, the thing was is that the Aztecs were brutal dictators of everyone around them. And so you have like dozens of smaller tribes that have been persecuted, like literally hunted for sacrifices by the Aztecs for like decades. All they want, they don't care who it is. They just want to kill them. Like, oh, you're going to let us help you kill these people that have been killing like my whole family for generations? Absolutely. Let's go. That's just natural selection. And so in the book, these humans are coming and there's certain factors, certain like members of each race that see there's a way we can use this to our advantage. If we play nice with them, maybe they'll play nice with us. And it seems like you thrive in that gray area of misunderstanding. Yeah. And I think it's like the third issue. I don't want to spoil anything, and I don't think I am, but you get the language barrier right yeah. away. So, like, the big conflict starts to get set off by the fact that the humans and the aliens don't understand each other. And this was before contact was coming up, by the way. Like, uh, uh, what's it, the new Arrival? Arrival. Uh, that was yeah, before Arrival. With the yeah. translator, yeah. Yeah, before Arrival came out, this was an issue we had with it. Like, they don't know how to communicate and then it's like, are they being aggressive? Are we being aggressive? What's going on? You know? So, yeah. Misunderstanding. Like, I really believe that a lot of human conflicts could have been resolved with just a little bit of communication and understanding. Right, because in the story, they're both trying to get out of it. The yeah. And the humans are trying to get out of it. It's funny because some are, but some aren't. Like, right. and as it goes, you'll see more of that. Okay. And that's the human condition, too. It's like, I'm not a confrontational guy. I don't like confrontation at all. Um, but I've got friends that are like, well, if he tripped me. I, I got to trip him back. It's like, why? You're just going to make it worse. You know, like, relax. I'm a like more of a pacifist kind of guy, and some people aren't. So I wanted to have that. The thing that I like about Game of Thrones is that even the worst characters have their obvious motivations. There are complete psychopaths like Ramsay, but Tywin Lannister, who is portrayed as a villain... I totally get why he's doing what he's doing. It makes if I was in his position, I would probably do the same thing too. Yeah. We hate him because he's good at what he does. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So were these some of the thoughts that you were having that led to the germ of the idea? To be honest, initially years ago, uh, I it started as kind of the idea germinated from the way uh, Battlestar Galactica ended. I never liked the ending. I know that's so cliche to say, but I felt that it was like, okay, we're done. You know, it's like, all right. Whereas I felt that the conflicts that they set up in the story, they just kind of like deus ex machina the ending. And I was like, you got such good themes in this. You should leave it as a 
gray ending, you know, does it end? What happens? You know, we can't all have Boardwalk Empire endings, but the, on the opposite end of the spectrum is the Battlestar Galactica ending. Right, right, exactly. So you were toiling, you know, for this as like a webcomic for a while. How did Fatty Hakim and Chapter House come to you, and what is it like working with them? We would print it and sell it at Fan Expo, and we printed it the first, like, we print, we, the idea was to print two issues a year. And so we printed the the first issue, and then... At Fan Expo, Ramon Perez came by and he like looked at the book and he just like picked it up and he was like this and he started flipping through. He's this is beautiful. And then what's cool and cathartic about that is by our very first Fan Expo, Ramon Perez came by and we had this we had a book and he was standing. Uh, who was he standing with? I think it was Kalman Andrzejewski. Somebody else. I don't and remember. Bloody, so you? No, no, no. It was years ago. Okay. He uh, picks it up. And he's like, Kagan McLeod. It was Kagan, Kagan McLeod. Okay. So he picks it up and he's flipping through the pages and he go. He kind of like gets this smirk. Like, and he points at a page and shows it to Kagan McLeod. He's like, like that. And I remember being like gutted by that experience. Being like, oh God, this is so embarrassing. He came by when we had Fourth Planet and he said, this book is beautiful. And then he went back to his, he bought a copy. He wouldn't take a free one. He bought it, went back to his table then Brendan Fletcher came over and he goes, I saw Ramon Perez looking at this book that I have to buy a copy. Like, let me buy a copy off of you. So he came and he bought a copy. Uh, and then he took a picture of it and tweeted it saying, this is the best indie book I've seen in years. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that's amazing. <laughs> and he talked about it on a podcast. And I had lots of people that emailed me being like, oh, I'd love to buy a copy. Where stores can I find it? And I'm like, uh, you, you, you can't. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not anywhere. <laughs> and so then Fatty, just they just started launching and they picked up the Piddle for Human Lizard. And uh, Jason Liu was like, he goes, you got to get this book to Fatty. And then when I saw Fatty walking the floor and I was like, hey, man, I'm Fred. I got this book. He was he said he goes, I was going to come by and grab this book before the end of the show. He goes, everybody, everybody in the raid studio is talking about this book that you guys have done. What year was this? This is like two years ago. Okay. And so that then he, uh, he was like, what are you doing with it? I'm like trying to make money man <laughs> you know so then we had lunch and the biggest hurdle with them was that originally it was a square the original print was a square okay and we did that so that we could put every page on instagram okay. and it would it wouldn't clip at all so they the biggest issue is they wanted to put it in a standard size format and yeah that was a, that's the only hurdle that we've really had with okay. chapter house because it's great that they they get it out there. Now our book is available internationally. It's sold really well in the UK, which is awesome because there's a European sci-fi cartoon called Ulysses 31, which is that was like my favorite show when I was a kid. And it uh, yeah, the, the a guy from the UK actually tweeted me saying this reminds me of Ulysses 31. I'm like, good. That's the best compliment you can give me, man. That's awesome. That's yeah. Awesome. So is it going to continue to be quarterly? Yeah, it'll yeah. it'll continue to be quarterly. And I know it's quarterly books are frustrating because you got to wait like three months in between each issue. But it's just we're small. We don't have the money to do more. I mean, this is an out-of-pocket expense that we just hope we get money back from on the back end. Right. Uh, our editor, 
is very very positive about it and he's like he was it's just a matter of time before this book gets going it was once you get that first trade out there that's when the wheels will really start turning and uh this the fourth issue is being solicited right now it'll be out in i think february right and then after four you're gonna collect it yeah, we're going to collect it after five, actually, because oh, okay. it's got a 15-issue arc. Originally, it was 12, but we're going to have to go to... Uh, it was 12 because it was we were doing, like, 30-page issues. But now we're doing 22-page issues, standard size stuff, so it's going to be 15 issues long. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And then you're also wanting to do a podcast, right? You have this zero-issue Issue podcast? zero podcast. Issue it, zero? Uh, and that's with the Antica Podcast Network. And so the thing is, is, like... When I when I talk to creators, like I I wanna I wanna hear their method. Like we had Jeff Lemire in, and hearing him talk about what he did, like it was it's wild. Like and Ray Fox, his approach and things like that. And I just love Simone even. Yeah, I've yeah. Well, that was the old podcast. I used to do a podcast called the Fredcast, and it's still it's still out there. And we and I did it for over like, I did it for over two years. And there's like I think there's over. There's a lot of issues out there. There's like a lot of them. And, and those were like really long. And I interviewed Ramon and stuff and hearing Ramon's like breakthrough and how he did books for like, uh, like RP, yeah, RP, yeah, butternut squash before that, when he was doing like interior art on palladium games, yeah. like the role playing games. <laughs> and what's cool about that. I used to play the, after the bomb series, like the mutant animals and all that stuff. And there's all these drawings from Ramon of this like one mutant rabbit and things. And he goes, that was a comic that I had drawn. And then I just sold them panels to put into the book to make money off of it. So he and I'm like, I would love to see the story he goes. I'll bring it to a fan expo if you want to take a look at it. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's awesome. So what's the story behind this podcast issue zero? Like, what do you want to do here? You just want to hear. I just want to talk to the it's a, it's more about the process of writing. But there's also like I talk about like pop culture. Basically, it's the topics that I'd like to go full bore on on the radio that I don't really get to go to on like talking about uh not only just the creative process of writers and stuff, but about the phenomenon of the fan community in general. Like we had Sam Meggs on uh, and just talking about like what you were talking about earlier, but how many women don't go into comic book shops? Like, why is that? So we talked about that and I love talking to Sam because she's so frank uh, and she's so positive. Sam is one of the Sam is an awesome human being because she's always giving people the benefit of the doubt until they like they give her a reason not to. Yeah. But we also had a professor of astronomy and from the U of T, uh, Professor Michael Reed on. And basically the conversation with him was like, let's ruin science fiction. <laughs> like, <is it? laughs> and so he's a huge sci fi guy. And he and he was like breaking down why certain aspects of science fiction that we all know and love just would not work. So being part of radio how do you feel about podcasting? Podcasting is amazing in the sense that you've got an in-house audience that is niche. So you never have to worry about like excluding people in the sense that if I love a podcast, if I love talking about engines, I can find a podcast that is just talking about engines and everything they say I will know. I'm not going to go on the radio and talk about the inner workings of a V12 engine because it's an engine. It makes the car go. What else do I need to know? You know, but if you're a big fan of mechanics, you're going to love that. And and there's things that podcasts are doing and they're very successful are things that I, as a radio guy, have always said that works and have been told, no, it doesn't. And it's showing that it works. It's 
It's relieving for me. Um, what are those things? Uh, radio plays. Okay. I love radio plays. Oh, I love them so much. But the issue with that is, is that you can do a, a, a podcast that's about a radio play, and it'll get like 3,000 downloads or 4,000 downloads, and you'll be like, that's good. Right on. 4,000 people. 4,000 people love what I just did. But that's 4,000 people globally. So your hit percentage is very small. Whereas if I only had 4,000 people listen to my morning show, I'd be fired. Period. Like I've got to bring in well over 300,000 people every day with what I'm doing. Like that's it. That's the demand. So how do you cope with that pressure? I don't think about it. Saying it out loud is very stressful. (laughs) Um, No, I just I just go in and I just do it. The podcasting community is there's so many great podcasts, but there's so many garbage podcasts. And what's frustrating about podcasts and YouTube in general, and you probably thought the exact same thing. It's so arbitrary. It's so arbitrary. Like, are you going to tell me uh, that PewDiePie is the best broadcaster ever and that his podcast is the best and it's so good no it's just he was in the right place at the right time and he developed the right fans that championed him right you could argue that if pewdiepie had started his podcast or his, his live stream his youtube channel a month later than he did or a month earlier it never would have succeeded it, it like it, and and i talked to george strombolopoulos about this once i'm like Dude, like, you're it. Like, what did you do? He's like, I was lucky. Yeah. And then he goes, "There's." He goes, I was just lucky. He goes, I worked hard. I tried a lot. And I constantly got my name in front of people. But in the end, it just came down to luck. When you work hard and you keep trying and you keep doing new things and all these things, you're really just increasing the odds. But it really is just a roll of the dice. And that's not me trying to sound negative. Right. It's just that's just the way it is. You need to accept it. Like, I'd been fired from every radio job I had for the first four years I worked in radio. I got fired from every single one. For various reasons. For various reasons. And the main re- resounding issue is I'm a weird dude. Like, and the thing was, is I'm not even that weird of a guy. It's just that I'm not the person you want doing easy listening radio in a town of 8,000 people. Right. I'm just not that guy, but that's how you start in radio. And that's how you learn those radio broadcasting skills of, of segueing, presenting audio, getting the message out right away, bringing listeners in. Da, 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 da. But didn't you land here in kind of a weird way? No, it's weird to people in Toronto, but anybody in radio totally understands how it worked. <laughs> Cause I'd been fired from everywhere. And then I got to Winnipeg. And when I got to Winnipeg, I refused to take no for an answer. And I went in every single day with a new demo and a new resume for three weeks. And every day I got to the front desk and every day the reception said the program director is busy. He can't come see you. And I knew he wasn't busy. I knew he just didn't give a shit about who I was. So I came back the next day and I went in every day and it was on the Friday of the third week. And I just I went in an hour earlier than I had gone in every other time. And the thing was, is that. Every time I was going in, I was going in at around 1.30 because I figured he'll be back from lunch. He'll be calmed down. It'll be easy for me to get in there and do things. But the, his reception, the receptionist at the front desk was like very much she didn't know. She didn't care. But I went in an hour earlier. I went in during lunch hour. And what ended up happening was the normal receptionist that was at the front desk was out for lunch. 
And the program director's personal secretary was working the front desk. And her name was Di Forsberg. And I will always owe her a debt of gratitude for this. Because I put my demo and my resume in front of her. And she starts laughing. She goes, you're the guy who's been coming in every day. That's hilarious. I'll get him out here right now. So she picked up the phone. And she said, um, she said that guy's back again. And he was on speakerphone. And he, he goes, he goes, tell him I'm busy. She goes, I'm not lying to the kid's face. You're on speakerphone. He knows you're not busy. <laughs> you're going to come up and you're going to talk to him. And he came up. And when I went to his office, I had this big like, listen, man, I know I'm not good enough to be on here. I know I'm not good enough. But I need to learn how to be a personality. I can't go back to another small market and work for somebody who's just going to treat me like garbage. I need to be here. And I'll do anything. I will do anything you let me do. And like I said, man, it was just timing. Had I gone in that first day and just left it that, I, I wouldn't be here now. It was going in every day. And then I just went in at the right time. And the right person was there. And that's really how life can work, man. That's awesome. So that's like podcasting is the same way. It's like, let's just say I launch my podcast. I do it for a year. And the most hits any of them ever gets is like a thousand. I, odds are I won't really give a shit about it. And I'll stop doing it. But what if, what if I do one? And Robert Kirkman listens to it. And he tells everybody, this is the best interview podcast I've ever heard. Everybody should listen to this. I loved it. I guarantee you I'll get significantly more <laughs> listeners after that. It's all arbitrary, man. Right. It comes down to the right person listening at the right time. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. So what are your goals for your podcast? I don't know. Talk about comics. Maybe get some insight that'll help me get better as a writer, too. Uh, or maybe just like hear somebody tell a story that like just changes me upstairs or maybe somebody like maybe somebody will listen and something that they hear will go on and they'll become this amazing comic book creator or amazing writer or anything. And when somebody asks them in an interview on another podcast, I'll be like, what was a moment for you? Oh, well. I was listening to this podcast and I heard this person say yada, yada, yada. And it, that changed everything for me. It changed the way I did it. Do you feel like you have responsibility, like with the position that you're in to give other people opportunities? I feel everybody has an a responsibility to do that uh, in radio. It's I make it very clear that if you're a student uh, and you send me your demo, I'll give you a full air check. I will completely critique your demo, like, and I will call you and we will go over it together. doesn't matter if you're a broadcasting student or whether you're working mornings in Fort McMurray or uh, you're doing another shift in another station somewhere else. I'll totally give you the time of day because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for people giving me the time of day. So, and that's a real, I remember sending so many emails to so many radio announcers and not getting a reply and it hurts, man. It's mean. And I, it, I cannot abide by it. It's like, I get so fucking irritated when I hear these like young announcers like talking like they're the cock of the walk and how oh, I would, but I'm just too busy. I got two kids and three jobs. You're going to tell me that you're busier and you can't make time. And here's another thing. You never know if one of those guys is going to grow up and be your boss. <laughs> right. That can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's the same with comics. Like imagine like you're like this creator and and I know that this has happened in the industry before where an editor has like passed off somebody's like like pitch and they didn't like it. And, and then they gave a gig to somebody that they were just friends with to help a buddy out. And they didn't take the better story. Right. Uh, and that story goes on to the next book, the next imprint and blows up. 
Those things stay on record. It's kind of like nepotism biting you in the ass. That whole, I, you know, it can, yeah. it can. There, there's a lot of stories like that, though, yeah. like where people have been like, "Well, you know, I didn't know the guy," and it's like that book that should have been a hit. Do you ever watch? Have you ever watched the show Vinyl? Yeah, yeah. It's like Vinyl yeah. when there, there's that session where he's like, they walk in and he's, he puts Abba on, and he's like. I could tell after three bars that was a hit, and you didn't take it. Why not? Well, because this, because that, you know? Yeah. That, that's, that, that's what it is. So now that you're sort of part of Chapter House, that has its own connotation because it's like the big Canadian shot for a lot of, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. A lot of people, right? So it's, how do you feel about being part of that? There's sort of a like a national pride pressure. That oh, it's great. I love the it. fact that my book is completely different than everybody else's. I, and like the same Rosie feels the same. Rossi feels the same way. Not Rosie. Rossi feels the same way. Like spirit leaves spirit is leaves, yeah. completely different than everything else they're doing. Uh, and it's cool. Cause like I got to write an issue of the pitiful human lizard. Uh, and because the true Patriot universe is in there now, like gall girl, my, one of my favorite creations who was started as a joke is like, like one of their more popular characters. So that's cool. Um, and I know that with the big launch of the chapter verse, I'm going to end up writing a lot of stuff for it. So it's, it's just, it's cool. It's just cool to be part of. Uh, and I think, I think if anybody feels the pressure, it's fatty because now he's got all these creators that are like, Hey, Hey, where's my money? <laughs> right, right, right. So what's next for you? Um, do you still have the writing for Marvel DC dream? Like, yeah, I do. I, you do? know, I'm not silver surfer is like a character. I've always loved to write. I would always, I would always love to write a Conan story, dude. If they told me to like write a Conan story, I could pitch you four Conan stories right now. Like, cause I've, I've been working on, like I wrote short stories for years and novellas and all that. And I created a character, uh, who is Conan, but, he's not conan uh he's like uh he's like a brackus i wrote a book called a novella called the horse son uh and it was like it's like a 300 page book and you can like find it online it's on amazon and all that stuff but like the character you can tell is definitely influenced by a young conan yeah so i'd love to do conan i'd love to do uh silver surfer but I've got a few. I've got a few pitches that are in the works right now. I'm working on a pitch with uh, Kyle Charles from Edmonton, and and it's that story. He's very confident that it'll end up on Black Mask, but we'll have to wait and see. That'd be pretty dope. That's awesome. So if anything happens with that, where can people find you on social media? Oh, I'm, can they keep track of you? At uh, Fearless underscore Fred uh, is my Twitter feed. You can find me on Facebook. Ted Fargus is the name that I go by on Facebook. Uh, I shouldn't really give that out, but I will. Because uh, it's for comic book people. They can find me. Um, and uh, Instagram, at Fearless underscore Fred. And there's my Twitter, my Facebook fan page, Fearless Fred. And yeah, just do a search. I'm out there. I'm everywhere. That's awesome, man. Your story's inspiring. I loved having you in. It's an honor to be in your studio. <laughs> 102.1 The Edge. Thank you for doing this. And we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Perfect. This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. Thank you.
This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.